This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. On today's show, thousands across the globe watched a live stream on Monday from the scene of the public mass shooting in Boulder. I knew at that moment this was a real serious incident. That was not clear from more traditional channels. Coming up, we look at changes in the news and information landscape, and we explore the toll that reporting on issues like mass shootings can take on both an audience and reporters alike. You're listening to KUNC's Colorado Edition. I'm Tess Novotny. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. The suspect in Monday's shooting at a King Supers grocery store in Boulder appeared in court for the first time on Thursday. A wheelchair was used to bring the 21-year-old Ahmad Alyssa into the courtroom, presumably because of the gunshot wound to the leg he suffered. A defense attorney immediately asked for a mental health assessment for Alyssa, who was charged with 10 counts of first-degree murder. He did not enter a plea and will be held without bond. The proceedings lasted for about five minutes. Prosecutors said more charges are likely. And with that, we are starting today's show with a look at news coverage around this week's shooting, the values and consequences of interviewing witnesses, the differences in local and national coverage, and the toll that extensive reporting on issues like mass shootings can take on both an audience and reporters alike. In a few minutes, we'll hear from NPR reporter Kirk Sigler, who was in Boulder this week, about covering mass shootings around the country and the approach that NPR is taking as a national media outlet. But first, we start with a look at the changing information landscape. As news of the shooting began to break on Monday, many across the state and across the globe watched the incident unfold through a video feed live-streamed on YouTube from the grocery store parking lot by a self-described independent journalist. Colorado College journalism instructor Corey Hutchins says the initial coverage gap between the live streamer and traditional media outlets reflects a rapidly changing news and information landscape. KUNC's Ray Solomon spoke with Hutchins about these changes and other ways Colorado media has evolved its coverage of mass shootings over the years. So I'd like to begin by talking about Dean Schiller, the self-described independent journalist who was live streaming the events of the Boulder shooting. Who is he and what are his journalistic credentials? Dean Schiller, as I understand him, is someone who has been known in recent years to film his interactions with law enforcement in the Boulder area and his work for uh, an outlet that he calls ZFG Videography, and it's his YouTube channel, essentially, uh, fits in with a broader national movement that's been called the First Amendment Audit Movement. Uh, folks around the country will film law enforcement, the folks out in public, uh, as they have a right to do under our nation's laws, and sometimes sue them if the officers act improperly. And Schiller has done that. Westward, the Alternative Weekly in Boulder, a couple of years ago, wrote a story about him doing just that. Interestingly, in this case, and why we're talking about Dean Schiller now, is that he usually seeks out this kind of filming by listening to a police scanner and then showing up. This time, he says that he was merely shopping at the Boulder King Supers when he heard what sounded like gunshots and fired up his lime stream. And what happened for the next three hours was very surreal. Can you tell us a little bit about what it captured and what it was like to watch that situation unfold in real time? I believe I first saw a link to this live stream video from a Twitter user who posted in the thread of the official Boulder Police Twitter account. So it was fairly early when this was going on. I noticed on the live stream that you could, while it was live and this person was uh, clearly at the scene of something chaotic, 
you could actually go back and see from the beginning when he started his live stream and it was incredibly graphic at the beginning of it you kind of see him processing a volatile scene in which he doesn't really understand i think what was what was going on he sees three motionless body at least three motionless bodies on the ground in the parking lot and inside i knew at that moment that this was a real serious incident that was not clear from more traditional channels and that continued to be the case for I would say, you know, more than an hour. What concerns come to mind for you when you hear about someone who's not a journalist in the traditional sense covering a dangerous situation like this? I'm not sure too many concerns come to mind. What what this kind of shows is the different ways in which audiences process news, which is only going to happen more and more as we get, you know, more technology that makes this available. You know, some people are going to question whether Dean Schiller is a journalist or not. I'm not particularly interested in that question, frankly. He says he was. I don't know if that really matters. What was interesting to me is that 30,000 people at one point were watching. And those 30,000 people were watching something completely different than if they turned on the local news or looked for uh, official sources like uh, authorities and police on their social media feeds or looked to the social media feeds of many uh, mainstream credential journalists who waited, as they typically do, for official comment from police. But it sounds like a lot of the coverage that Dean Schiller normally does is antagonistic to the police. That seems to be a focus of his. Do you think that's problematic to get this frontline first information about such a sensitive topic from someone with with an angle like that? He was confronting the police in a way that a credentialed reporter would not have during that live stream. Absolutely. He'll be criticized for that. One criticism that I could think of about that is if he's flipping the bird to officers. Uh, and he was angry because he believed he had a First Amendment right to be there in public filming the scene. He said, I, I'm doing a public service. I know you are too. He said, let me do my job. But he also swore at them. And at one point when asked his last name, he said, F off is my last name, but he actually used the word. You know, yeah, clearly he was being antagonistic uh, towards the officers. I, as a viewer, I watched that and I rolled my eyes and I kept watching because at that time he was providing information to me that I felt I could not get anywhere else and I wasn't the only one. Mass shootings have happened so often in Colorado that people can start to feel almost numb to them. And it's terrifying that such a tragedy can start to feel kind of normal. Have you noticed this at all in Colorado's media coverage of events like this? What I've noticed is that journalists in Colorado are unfortunately really well prepared to cover these mass shooting events, perhaps more than reporters in other parts of the country. That's clear in the statements that they're making themselves. Journalists throughout the past couple of days in Colorado have openly spoken about the sad commentary in which they've only been a reporter for X number of years and have already covered X numbers of shootings. I understand that. I moved to Colorado in 2014 and I write for the Washington Post sometimes. I believe four out of the five stories I wrote for the Washington Post were about shootings. I know a reporter here in Colorado who, after not the latest or even the one before that shooting, said that he got to the point where he felt like he needed to buy a gun. Alex Burness at the Denver Post said something yesterday that resonated with me. He said that the journalists, or he felt the journalists in Colorado were doing 
a really good job with their coverage, unfortunately, because they've had so much practice. And so, yes, it is a unique place for this kind of journalism. I teach journalism at Colorado College. I teach a lesson on how to cover a school shooting in my introduction to journalism class. I feel like I have to. Corey Hutchins is a journalism instructor at Colorado College. He's also a correspondent for the Columbia Journalism Review. Corey, thanks for talking with us. Thank you. And now we're going to get the perspective of a former local reporter who has covered a lot in his career. Now he's back in Boulder to cover this week's public mass shooting for NPR. Kirk Sigler was a reporter with KUNC for five years and helped the station and the network cover the Aurora Theater shooting in 2012. Kirk, welcome to Colorado Edition. It's great to be here, unfortunately, under not great circumstances. One of the reasons we wanted to have you come on is is because of this experience you've got covering these tragic events. But I want to start with the coverage that you're a part of this week, national coverage for a story that's very local to us and our listeners. What is NPR's approach to these events? That's an interesting question, and it's one that we've wrestled with in the newsroom for years now as these mass shootings get, you know, seemingly worse and more frequent, more dynamic and more issues at play. uh, We've had some pretty robust debates on how we should cover them and specifically, which I think is part of a national debate conversation, if you will, how much attention do we give to the gunmen? versus how much attention do we give to the victims and the survivors? There's been a lot of criticism over the years, in particular of national media coverage, focusing so much on the gunmen. You know, you can really, here in Colorado, go back to Columbine, and researchers have been able to draw links to the fact that the gunmen in Columbine were an inspiration to future perpetrators of mass shootings. So we have tried I'll use the Boulder story here as an example because we're in the middle of it. We have tried to, of course, we have to cover the motive. We have to cover the investigation. But we're also trying as much as we can to not name the alleged you know, shooter, the, the, the suspect, uh, only when possible. And we're trying to do as much coverage as we can right now about the survivors and the victims. You know, that's something that you can detect here in Boulder, that the police, the authorities are trying to keep that narrative on the victims and the survivors and not spend as much time, as some might say, glorifying the gunman. Can you tell us more about the differences between covering a story like this nationally versus locally? I don't see too much of a difference in how we cover these events locally or nationally. There may be nationally a little bit more discussion about, you know, what could be done again on the national level. It's almost like these, these tragedies now, because there's so many of them and I've covered so many of them, going back to Aurora in particular, follow this sort of, the aftermath follows this just sort of grim uh, script basically. Like, you know, there's chaos, then there's a makeshift memorial, which we're seeing popping up all around Boulder. Then the conversation is focused and moves immediately to politics and gun control nationally. Uh, It's a little bit different covering that because we'll pull back and look at what's happening in Washington. But, you know, honestly, these days, it almost feels like every local issue is national. You know, you walk around Boulder right now, you're going to hear a lot of people who are angry and sad and puzzled. But you're also going to hear an earful in a liberal college town like this of anger about why assault weapons aren't banned and why this city's local assault weapons ban was overturned. So I guess to answer your question, I really feel as though there's less and less difference in, in how we might cover these 
as a local reporter versus the national from the national perspective. You covered the Aurora theater shooting in 2012, and I'm wondering what you learned there and how it applies to your reporting now. From my perspective, that was kind of the beginning of a just long string of mass shootings after that. So interesting to you know think back on the Aurora theater shooting that I covered for KUNC and NPR at the time. You know that really, for me anyway, kind of set things off. And then a few months later, I went to the network and found myself in Sandy Hook, Connecticut. You know, as a reporter, these things do wear on us. Uh, of course, they wear on everybody. But there's also this sense of we keep covering these things, we keep doing these stories, we keep keep telling the victim stories, we keep doing policy stories, we keep trying to shine a light on things that we think could bring about change in this country. And it's hard not to get cynical because these tragedies, like the one that happened in Boulder this week, just keep happening. One thing one of the reporters said in our, our news meeting the other day was that the fact that reporters are kind of becoming desensitized to this could be seen as evidence that like nothing is changing. Do you have any thoughts on that, having covered as many as you have? I hope we don't get desensitized to it. But there is a bit of frustration among many of us reporters who continue to cover these, in particular in Colorado, where the per capita rate of these tragedies is a lot higher than much of the rest of the U.S. Well, here we are again. We report on gun policy. We report on mental health issues. We try to shine a light on so many problems in society. And we'd like to think our work starts conversations and and informs policymakers and, and pressures people to think differently and change people on all sides of the political spectrum. And yet there's a pervasive sense in the news media and unfortunately in communities like this. I've been hearing from people in Boulder all week who are grieving and also saying, why can't we fix this? Why can't we do better, America? And, and a frustration that uh, nationally, Congress isn't representing the needs of people in communities like this. And that again, once again, the debate shifts to Washington where there's gridlock and in many people's minds, they've already kind of been made up. Nothing's gonna change. That was NPR's Kirk Sigler. He's been in Boulder covering this week's mass shooting. Kirk, thanks for talking with us. My pleasure. You're listening to Colorado Edition from KUNC. When some Boulder residents heard about the shooting at King Supers, they were far away from home and forced to grapple with the news from a distance. For the University of Colorado men's basketball team, the incident took place just hours before playing in the second round of the NCAA March Madness Tournament. KUNC's Alana Schreiber spoke with Deshaun Schwartz, a senior guard and forward for the Buffs, about what it meant to represent Boulder at the March Madness Tournament and the significance of taking the court just a few hours after learning about the tragedy. In your first game at the NCAA March Madness Tournament, you played Georgetown and you really obliterated them, winning 96-73. to With that success in your back pocket, What was the confidence and the energy like leading into the Florida State game? We knew going into Georgetown that we were sort of an underdog, even though we were the the higher seed. But um, we just wanted to go out and play our hardest. And we did that, got the win. So looking forward to Florida State, we kind of approached stuff in in a similar mindset. We didn't have as much time to prepare for them. We only had one day. So, you know, we just practiced hard and try to do the best we could um, with the limited time that we had. Obviously, we didn't fall off the win, but we fought hard and went out swinging. Shortly before tip-off on Monday, news broke about a shooting at a Boulder King Super store. 
How did you find that out? How did you and your teammates react to the news? I think we all got a an Amber Alert on our phones, like before the game, and we didn't really talk much about it. We didn't discuss it. We were trying to focus on the matter at hand. But um, there was definitely a sort of vibe in the locker room that was a little bit different. I want to talk a bit about the game itself. Although Florida State ended up winning 71-53, to your team gave it a great fight. The first half was really low scoring, pretty much all defense, and the Buffs went into the second half just four points off the lead. And despite the ultimate loss, you yourself led the team scoring 13 points that game. So looking back now, how do you think the game went on Monday? Do you think that the way that you guys played was at all impacted by the news of the shooting? I think the game was just tough because we we were so close in that first half. We ended up cutting it to, to one in the second half, and then they made their run, and we just couldn't quite get over that hump. So, you know, it was it was a little unfortunate that we couldn't pull that one out for Boulder. I know it would have meant a lot for the people back home watching, but I think when, when guys hit the floor, it's, we just kind of worry about what's at hand. Basketball is something that a lot of us have been doing all our lives, and You know, we've had to face these challenges all year with COVID protocols and not having fans and these type of things. So I think we've gotten better at adapting to certain certain things, certain news stories that have been going on around us. But, you know, we kept in the back of our minds as we were playing. We were all heartbroken for Boulder. What happened after the game? Coach Boyle, he he wasn't in the in the greatest of spirits given the game and what happened. So, you know, he kind of just told us that this loss and that this game, we got to put everything in perspective that there's bigger things going on in the world. It's just very unfortunate what happened and we were all heartbroken. And what was that experience like coming back to Boulder after the mass shooting? I think it's difficult to kind of come to terms with what happened, um, especially since we were out of town for so long. We kind of felt out of touch a little bit, but, you know, we came back and thought about getting groceries and then didn't didn't end up actually going to King Supers, which is somewhere I, I go often. But um, so, you know, it, it was hard, but it's just some things that you got to just keep pushing through. There have been many moments in history when a sports feat inspires some hope after a moment of tragedy. I'm thinking about Mike Piazza's home run at the Mets' first game back after 9-11, or all the runners wearing Boston Strong shirts at the first Boston Marathon the year after it was bombed. And despite the news of the deadly mass shooting in your city on Monday, your team managed to play on. What message does that send? I think it meant a lot for us to be there at March Madness. I think us playing and having something for Boulder to root for meant a lot. You know, we all care for each other. And that's kind of what Boulder embodies as a community, sticking together and fighting through hard times. And I think it's embodied through sports, not only, but also as our student body and, you know, everybody else involved in the entire Boulder County. I think it shows that we're competitors, we're passionate, and that we care about Boulder and that we care for the name on the front just as much as we care about the name on the back. Deshaun Schwartz, senior forward and guard for the CU Boulder men's basketball team. Deshaun, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. You can tell by the 10-hour debates and lobbyist-filled hallways that things are returning to normal at the state capitol. 
and that has some lawmakers reviving bills they shelved because of the pandemic. That includes a health care plan that aims to lower costs for those who buy insurance on the individual market because they cannot get it through an employer. But as KUNC's Scott Franz reports, the idea is once again stirring a big controversy. Among his colleagues, Dylan Roberts continues to shoulder an unflattering statistic at the state capitol. The two counties that I represent, Eagle and Route, there is only one option on the health insurance market for those who buy on the individual market. And those premiums are some of the highest, not only in our state, but in our country. And for the third time in three years, he's launching a bill he says has the best chance of fixing it. It's called the public health insurance option. We could spend hours discussing the nuances, so I'll let him explain the basics. This plan puts some limits on how much hospitals can charge under the plan. It makes it raises the amount of money per dollar that insurance companies have to spend on your actual care. And he says adding a government-controlled plan could lower premiums by as much as 18 percent. There was momentum to pass it last year, but hospitals and insurance companies blasted it, saying it would destabilize the market. Then the pandemic hit. So we went back to the drawing board and made some significant changes that um, actually make me feel more confident and excited about what what's coming forward. The latest version boils down to an ultimatum to the healthcare industry. Bring insurance prices down by 20% over the next two and a half years, or the government will step in with its own plan to compete. So that will drive everybody in the healthcare industry, I believe, to the table. But even Roberts acknowledges that two and a half years is a long time, and his constituents really can't afford to wait like freelance writer Dave Williams. Year after year, we keep paying $20,000 a year uh, for health insurance for a young, you know, relatively healthy family. Williams lives in Eagle County, which only has one insurance option on the individual market. And the deductibles on these plans are terrible. We don't start getting the benefit until we pay $6,500. So hopefully the insurance industry understands the situation and really works hard with the providers to get the cost down. It's time to tell politicians we cannot afford the state government option. But the healthcare industry is already blasting the new bill. They recently spent about a million dollars running ads like this attacking it. It gives politicians greater control over your health care, threatening the coverage you already have and increasing costs. For Williams and others who are paying out tens of thousands of dollars each year on health insurance, the ads are hard to watch. These oversimplified ads don't uh, don't help. They, they do not help the situation because what needs to really happen is, is lawmakers, uh, the health, ins- health insurance providers, and the health care providers um, all need to get on the same page here um, and, and really start resolving this. This issue. Advocates of a public option say the COVID-19 pandemic has made the issue more critical. Thousands of Coloradans have lost their jobs. And along with the job loss, they've lost their employer-provided health insurance. Kristen Nordenholz is an emergency medicine physician in Denver. Nobody should have to choose between seeing a doctor, putting food on the table, or getting their medications. But the bill is getting a chilly reception from front-range business groups. The Denver Metro Chamber says it could shift the cost from the individual market to the majority of Coloradans who get it from their employers. The chamber declined an interview request for this story, and Roberts says he's not buying their concerns. I've heard and read from some people who say that now is not the time for bold, necessary reforms like this bill. 
And all I'll say is that those individuals have not spent enough time with the constituents that we represent who are paying some of the highest premiums in the state and making decisions right now as to whether they should go another year without security of health insurance or not. I hope this works. It, it needs to work. Until it does, Dave Williams says Eagle County residents continue to face elevated premiums or risk going bankrupt if they go without insurance and get sick or injured. It's really stifling people who are self-employed, which is a lot of us up here. It's stifling small business. It's really having a, uh, you know, a very dire economic impact. Previous versions of the public option bill had Republican co-sponsors, but only Democrats are leading the effort on the latest version. I'm Scott Franz at the state capitol. Debate on that public option bill is expected to start Friday. You can find more coverage of the Colorado State Legislature at our website, KUNC.org. That's our show for today. Next week on Colorado Edition, we take an in-depth look at a new bill that would ban paramedics from injecting people with ketamine or similar drugs in confrontations involving the police. I'm Tess Novotny. And I'm Henry Zimmerman. Our production staff includes Alana Schreiber and Ray Solomon. Brian Larson is our executive producer. And our theme music was composed by Colorado musicians Brianna Harris and Johnny Burroughs. Thanks for listening. This is Colorado Edition from KUNC. 